Thank you, Brother Larry. And uh, I do want to thank the Lord for your presence this morning. May the Lord bless us as we search His Word. January the 15th, 2009. day you probably don't remember in particular, but many of you watched have probably watched a movie which depicted what went on that day uh, as a plane left LaGuardia Airport. Five minutes later, after having hit a flock of birds, what did that plane do? It fell out of the sky. I'm going to ask you why. You might say because of the birds. I said, uh-uh. That's not the reason, is it? Last Sunday, a little sub left there, a place headed toward the wreckage of the Titanic. It went down to a depth of 12,500 feet. The malfunctioning sub cost the lives of all of those folks. I'll never forget in high school, a car that I always dreamed to have, a Trans Am. Many of you have those cars in your day. Maybe it was a Corvette, a Z28, or some other car. Now, if you're older, it could have been a 55 Chevy or something, right? But I remember all longing to have one of those kinds of cars and those boys who had them. One fateful day, a young man who had one of those cars sped down the road in town at a speed that was excessive and hit a tree about three foot in diameter. And guess what that tree did not do? Right. You see, God's designed the world in such a way and Christ holds it up according to the word of His power with what we have determined by observing phenomena we call laws. One of them's gravity. You see, that plane didn't fall out of the sky because the birds hit the engine merely. It fell out of the sky because there's something called gravity. The sub's malfunction, you see, was caused by a law that God established. When you go down deep in the water, it's like putting 10,000 tons on your back. We would understand if this morning we demonstrated that with four yards of concrete and dropped it from a distance of a foot and you were laying under it. What might you look like? Right. You see, these things are realities of which we cannot transgress other than we pay the penalty. But don't think of consequences merely in that light. You see, a consequence is that you woke up this morning and you walked out on your front porch. You didn't float without any kind of uh, item helping you because you were held to the ground by gravity. It's a benefit, isn't it? So all of these things that we see that God designed are true and right. And when we operate within the confines or the bounds of them in nature, we are indeed a blessed people. Note this one writer spoke concerning the four laws of nature like this. All of the various laws have in common, despite the diversity, is it is that it is necessary that everything obey them. It is impossible for them to be broken. What he's speaking about is gravity and other things. The very things I just spoke about. It's impossible for them to be broken. My argument this morning, I use argument in the right way, not what some of you do with your spouse, but rather in a way that's biblical in trying to prove to you something that God has given us. Something that you need to hold in your own heart and mind as valuable and use it in your life as a principle to operate in God's world. 
Not only do I believe that there are in the laws of nature what God's design, and when we transgress them, we experience the consequence. I don't fault those folks in that sub for going. Men have had, like Wilbur Norville Wright, a longing. Because they're created in God's image to pursue their desires and dreams. Now look, you can race a car around the racetrack. You can stand up on a horse like one of the little Gunderson boys does. But when you fall... Or when you wreck, you hit the ground and you hit the wall and things can occur, right? We understand that. So we don't live in a bubble. We don't live like that. We experience life and go on. But no matter what you think about God's laws, they will be operable in every way. And so in the moral world, my friend, I believe that God's given us In creation, the very thing he's established in the moral universe. I believe this passage in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 captures it. No more could we ask the question, that's why did Sully's plane fall out of the sky than the fact that gravity is operable than we can as we watch the world pursue its wickedness and descend into all kinds of difficulties. You see, God's moral universe can in no way be broken without the consequences. And those who've experienced the blessings of God's consequences know very well that very thing is is true. You've planted your gardens this year. You, You put a tomato plant in the ground. And when you went out there, guess what was on it? An apple. Nope. A tomato. Because the very laws that God operates by are a blessing in your life and can be so often and are. And as I look around this room, I see folks who have experienced over and over again the faithfulness of sowing good seed and reaping good harvest. And so, brothers, let us see then from this text for those who are here and believing. This is for us, isn't it? For you who are here and unbelieving, what does this have to do with me? One day there will be some books open for you in heaven. At the last day, you'll be judged out of the things that you've done, the way that you've sown, the things you've prepared to inherit for eternity. My encouragement to you is think quickly and carefully and consistently about just what this book of Galatians is. Not only is it going to teach us the importance of considering God's moral universe and the consequences of it in a good way and in a negative, but it also, the main emphasis of the letter is that Paul's facing a situation in a church that he had everything to do with starting by preaching the gospel there. There had been false teachers that had come in. And I say this in order that you wouldn't leave this morning confused in any way. That I'm telling you that works gets you to heaven. They do not. That's not my goal, neither is it the purpose of this letter. That's not even true. As our brother faithfully prayed, you can't outwork your sin any more than you can out-exercise your fork. Right? Think about that a minute and you'll get it. And so it is with a letter to Galatians, as I set the platform for this particular message, you must know 
that it's Paul's very purpose in writing this letter to defend the gospel he received by revelation, not from man nor through man, but the gospel of grace that causes him to say things like this, Christ, who gave himself for our sins. If there was a law given that could make a man right, Christ died in vain. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let there be no confusion, my brother and sister. Luther took up this letter against the Catholic Church to make certain that the emphasis of justification, big word, standing right before God, was but one way, faith in Christ. So this morning, there will be no confusion, though I will clearly indicate what the Scriptures teach us in Galatians 6, it does in no way negate the reality that only in Christ are you right with God. Alright? Well, that's settled then. And there's no question of it. Let's then note from this chapter in Galatians 6, verse 7, four particular things that are so important. The first being man's problem. Man's problem. And so the Bible's clear about it. Even Paul takes it up in this particular letter in so many places, but I'll note just a few. The issue in Galatians that they had been deceived. All over the Bible, it's clear that this is the attitude of man. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You should always stand in such a way as to consider everything you believe and hold it in such a way that when the Scriptures speak, a way which you've never believed, you change what you believe and believe the Scriptures. That's the point. So Paul, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, says that there were a group of folks who had distorted the gospel. Chapter 3 and verse 11, he speaks of the foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you. In verse five, in chapter five and verse seven, you were want running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Chapter six and verse three says this: If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If we think deception is something that only the early church faced, then we're far wrong, aren't we? We can go back as early as the garden to find that in Genesis 3, the serpent that appeared was spoken of like this in the Bible. He was more crafty than all the other animals. And it says of our first parents, when she had to give a reason for why she ate the tree, and you can see that description in Genesis as she began to go through the reasons that she ought to do what God said not to. And what you find in that place, when inward she wasn't bent towards sin, nor outward was she in a culture that forced her into sin, nor had she been parents through which she had inherited this sin, she was led astray. The Bible says deceived. It says of herself, in her moment of trying to give an excuse, the serpent deceived me. 
Now, that wasn't Adam's excuse, was it? No, no, he uses our excuse. It was my wife's problem. Correct? But nonetheless, we find in those early moments, those early days or years of our parents, first parents, that deception was a problem even in the place when sin wasn't present other than in the heart of Satan. And so may I say this morning that for all of us, we must understand the importance of and the necessity of considering the things that we have believed and embraced lest we be deceived. Matthew speaks of a time in a generation when if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. So if you this morning think yourself far too smart or a biblical theologian in such a way that you cannot be led astray, my friend, you are already led astray. You need one another. You need the church. You need the Bible. You need faithful companionship and preaching. For what purpose? That you might not be deceived. What is deception? It's being led astray in thoughts or words or appearance. How often as we watch the world can we say that they're led astray by wrong things? They come to wrong conclusions. How is it that the Bible teaches us that we ourselves can be led astray? Well, this very letter makes it clear there were false prophets. You are the type of person, so am I, that says something like this. Oh, I'll know a false prophet when I see him. Just like Eve knew who the devil was when she saw him, right? No, no, false prophets have been around for years and years from the beginning. Spreading the very heart of Satan, which is lies and deception. So it was with the Galatian church. They didn't come and say, give up on Christ. That's not what they said. Give up on Christ. He's of no value. No, no. They spoke in a positive light about Christ. Simply said, you need to be circumcised as well. There are some days you need to observe. There are some things you need to do. If you're going to make this salvation complete, you've not quite reached it all. I know you say you believe in Jesus. That's a great thing. But you're lacking a few things. We're going to help you out. We're going to help you out. Well, my brothers and sisters, this indeed is not true. So we understand and know that false prophets, friends, priests, kings, slaves, men and women, Satan himself are all in the Bible. Given that position of those who lead others astray. Just because somebody says one thing doesn't mean at all that they're not someone who could possibly be a false prophet. Even Paul would say of his own preaching... In the book of Acts, you go and check what I say. And brothers and sisters, I would say that every time I speak. And I know any pastor here would. Look at your own Bible. Search the scriptures. See if these things are so. Be like the Berean Christians. Go and verify it for yourself. Be like Ronald Reagan. Trust but verify. Right? But note in Galatians 6 and 3, your greatest enemy... It's probably not any of that I mentioned before, though they are formidable formidable foes. I get that word out. But in Galatians 6 and 3, you yourself deceive yourself. Did you notice that? 
One of your greatest temptations is, is to deceive yourself. How can we explain through the years all the things we see around us and those who follow leaders who were wicked and evil and say not, but these folks deceive themselves? And certainly that's the case. I want you to note two areas in which they were being deceived, and this will help us as we move forward. One is in this matter of salvation. Paul made it clear that if I or an angel from heaven or any other person comes and preaches to you another gospel, let them be accursed. He repeated it twice for emphasis. The point is, every time you turn around, that will be the area in which you're challenged. That is the most critical thing in all your life. Deception. Some would say concerning the sub, you've heard the stories as... The owner went around and encouraged those to invest 250000 to take the trip. He said of his sub, it's safer than walking across the street. Well, was he deliberately deceiving somebody? Or was he just ignorant? Well, that's for God to determine. Because now, he's in eternity. I don't know. But this I know. That you and I have to check the things in this way. And so please be careful. And so it is with the most important thing in life. It's the gospel. There will be on every hand those who try to turn your thoughts away from it. Who add something to it. Something like baptism. Something like speaking in tongues. Something like the value of the church which is valuable indeed. And certainly the church has been given the keys to preach the gospel. And so much more. You need to be a part of a church and it's wrong not to be, indeed. But there's no particular church that holds for you heaven. All of these things have been preached through the years and you know about them. The Reformation sought to correct some of them, but it didn't stop any of them at all. They still in different ways seep into the hearts of others to water down the most important thing, which is the gospel. How can we know that's the most important thing? Well, we can see in the Bible when Jesus' apostles came back, having cast out demons and accomplished many things in His name, you'll see that what He said to these men, you remember, they were excited. Wouldn't you be? How many of you like to tell an exciting story? <laughs> I see you. You love it. And it's good. They were telling their exciting stories. Jesus stopped them in the middle of it. And he said, this thing is the thing to rejoice in most. That your names are written in the book. Friend, for you and for me, the most important thing is that we know that Christ has written our name in the book. We rest on this truth. When someone tries to shake us loose from that tree, we have to flee. Hold on, please, to the gospel. So then there's another way in which we are often deceived, in which you'll see here. The misuse of our freedom in chapter 5 and verse 13. Galatians says this, You were called to freedom, brothers. Boy, we love that. I can do whatever I want. Is that freedom? Is that what you call freedom? I can drive the wrong way down a one-way street. Well, you can. <laughs> two things might happen. One, you might get a ticket. Or two, you might get killed. 
That's not freedom, is it? For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what can often be our moment of deception? I'm a Christian. It's about grace. I can live any way that I want to. It doesn't matter anymore. Grace covers my sin. I can sin in part with no thought. Do you think anybody has that thought ever? Paul assumed you would in Romans 6. God forbid that we who are dead to sin should continue any longer therein. Right? So it was these Galatian Christians who were struggling with this point. And it's on this particular point that I want to focus. What's God's position concerning this very thing? And you will note in the previous statement I made, he said, be not deceived. You guard yourself against deception, he said. Correct? And then this is the reason, for God will not be mocked. We have in the last four years seen police stations burnt to the ground, 1,500 businesses burnt in the area of Minnesota, in Minneapolis, numbers of things, billions of dollars in damage by those who thought that it's right to mock the systems of justice. We watched in horror as we watched folks, folks just like you and I, give themselves the freedom to disobey in ways that were astounding. What was that called? What did that illustrate? It illustrates this passage. They mocked at the law. They held it in contempt. They insulted it by their actions. They decried it with their words. They used other things to give themselves an excuse to break into someone's store and steal and feel confident about it. Brothers, that is called mockery. But were it only in the system of those who, like those folks, found themselves in the middle class or often lower, impoverished, they gave themselves some sense of freedom because what's yours is mine. It's wrong. It's a mockery. But this week we found in the words of John Durham that not only in those low places, but in high places, the very folks given to protect us with laws, they mock them by their disregard for them, our own FBI and others. It's tragic, friend. But does that give you an excuse? You see, the laws of our land might well be mocked. And we've watched them and they were. And what you and I were gripped with, those who appreciate them, were horror. But let me tell you what will never occur. The police might have to stand back and watch their station be burned to the ground. The manager at CVS to get $500 worth of stuff stolen by some man who's unwilling to work. That might well occur. And those men might well in appearance mock justice. But I tell you what the Bible's clear about will never occur for you or for me is that God would be mocked. That will never occur. 
According to the Scriptures, our view must be, irregardless of what we see around us, irregardless how culture pushes us, this thing is so. God will not be mocked. Not by you, not by another. That was the point you see here in the book of Galatians. That he was emphasizing with the Galatian Christians. You have to understand, as he gave them encouragement not to bite and devour one another. Stop not paying your pastors. Pay them, he said. Love one another. And demonstrate that in the ways you live. Don't beat one another down. If someone's captured in a fault, restore that brother in a spirit of meekness. And watch yourself if you think you won't be. But you see the important part for you and for me in the Christian church is that we need to see the value and the importance that God Himself written in Scripture will never be mocked. He says, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. It's important for us to have fixed in our minds what Peter had to deal with in the book of Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Why is it? That we watch the simple and the foolish and the wicked. Get away with things in this world. And have no what appears to be consequences for them. It emboldens others to do the same. And you see what the Bible speaks about as Peter spoke. Don't count the patience of the Lord. Anything other than salvation. He's not being indifferent to sin. You see God himself will never be mocked. We can't flaunt our sin in His face. The Galatians were encouraged to consider this carefully. You see, my brother and sister, it's a restraint to our own evil passions. What restrains you from going getting $500 worth of stuff and walking out the store? Huh? You're going to jail. You do it. That's a restraint you ought to be thankful for. What keeps you driving 100 miles an hour down Frederica Street? You'll lose your car and your license and your ability to get back and forth to work. You ought to be thankful for that. But you see, when that's gone, what happens? Well, we see what happens. So here's the important part. Not merely that you look at our culture and say, look what's going on around me. But you look at it and see the seeds that have been sown and the result of it. And you say something like this, I know in my own life, you see, God will never be mocked. The things that I do, God's not indifferent to. You see, the reality is every sin will be dealt with somewhere or the other. Do you know that? There's not a person who picks a piece of fruit off a tree regardless of what we think that is, but it's disobedience and it costs the world death and sin. Your sin and mine will be paid for at some place, either at Calvary or through eternity as consequences of corruption. So if you're here an unbeliever, I would encourage you deeply to consider such a thing. Just because we don't see immediate justice doesn't mean that justice isn't coming. It certainly is. And this is the statement that God will never be mocked. Please, Find a place in your mind for this category because the Bible's clear about it. From beginning to end, individuals, families, cultures, nations. In July, I'll be speaking of that. 
how this works out in all of those areas. Please consider that carefully in your own life. And so it is that God's principle law then comes in this way. We see it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows. What? This is the principle the scriptures give us. Life is a field, so to speak. What then is the seed that we sow? It's our actions, our attitudes, and our words. As we populate that field with seed, which soon shall come back to each of us as a crop, a harvest, a fruit, that we at some point will indeed eat. Now let me say here just this one thing. Mom and dad, those little hearts in your home, very often you scatter many, many seeds on those little hearts. Be careful what you scatter. You see, you can give your children a far greater opportunity to understand the importance of these truths by being careful with what you say and do in your own home. The Bible's clear about that. And what a blessing, children, you have when your parents value these moments and these days in such a way that they're careful at the seed that they choose and sow in your little heart. You see, folly's bound up in your heart. It's real. It's true. You're here and you're a child. You've got to know that's a reality. Though grandma might look at you when you smile and you say, I love you, and she in her heart is taken back by this fact, that's the sweetest kid I've ever seen. It might be in that moment. (laughs) But the fact is, his folly is bound up there. You parents who don't realize that, or you who deny it, listen, you're doing your kid no service. Matter of fact, a disservice. It's a fact. Be careful what you do and say in your home. You're sowing seeds all the time. Those little hearts are little fields. Be careful with them. They're tender. Be deliberate. Be a mindful gardener. And be careful in your own home, please. And so this is a universal truth. The Bible indicates here this fact of sowing. We see it in our natural world, don't we? We sow seeds and we reap. It's the way it works. Isn't it amazing how God's established that and uses it as an illustration for us in our lives? We sow seeds and we reap them. Isn't it crazy that you would think for a moment that you're going to go out to the field behind you and you're going to reap some tomatoes, yet you never sown them? Who would be such a fool? But there are many of them. They live life with an unconcerned thought. They're not mindful of the way in which they sow. Or as a matter of fact, they sow completely wrongly. And they think they're going to get a different result. Friends, what God's established as a universal truth is this reality, not only in our natural world, but in our moral world. This is a fact. And we'll do well to take note. Because God's design in it is benefit. You see, when God first established the world, there were no weeds. There were no things like thorns and thistles. Adam, not with the sweat of his brow, but in the delight of his heart, could, you see, enjoy God's garden. But because of sin, Adam heard these words. Thorns and thistles shall this ground bear. 
and with the sweat of your brow, you'll have to farm it. And so Galatians says, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and the one is contrary to the other so that you can't do what you want. What does that mean? It's the result of what Adam did and heard. You don't do what you want. It's Romans 7, brothers and sisters. Even you who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who await heaven, you yet wrestle in these bodies. And rightly so. The consequence of Christ's death is good for you, isn't it? You ought to be delightful with consequences. But the reality in these moments is, this truth is universal. The second thing, timing is key. Proverbs 20 and 24 says concerning a son who is faithful to plow and sow is a son who is faithful to harvest in the autumn or in the summer. Timing is key. You see, you think that maybe at some point in your life you'll get about the business of sowing some good seed. But right now, you're a little busy. You're young. Or whatever might be the case. There have always been excuses for not sowing correctly or in a timely manner. And anybody here who farms or gardens, they look at their almanac and decide which is the best day to sow their seed so they can enjoy the best crop. Right? So here it is, my friend, that for you and for me, their timing is key. And when is the time to sow good seed? Today is the day. Amen? You cannot wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's no guarantee for you or for me. The Bible's clear. Today is the day. The second thing, priorities are crucial in this matter of sowing. Yeah, there's a proverb, Proverb 24 and 27 that says this. You go get your work done in the field first and then come and build your house. Go do what you know is important so that you can reap the harvest before you build your house. There are a few things more important than building a house. But there is one thing more important. That's sowing your field. Isn't that amazing? How many times did Paul read that proverb? How often was his mind gripped by that truth? How the Spirit of God uses the Scriptures in our lives. Brings these truths to bear on us. You see, the priority for you to sow is critical. Irregardless of your busy life or all the other things that you've been gripped to do, the important thing is that you sow good seed. Here's the reality. You don't have time not to, right? So the question comes, if those things are so important, how then do we sow? Well, I think... Christ got it right. He always gets it right. (laughs) So how do you sow? I think Christ made it clear and helped us in this way. You join your heart with your hand. You see, it's not some big thing like what maybe a Billy Graham was called to do or others who stand behind a pulpit. And for you, that's where a man sows. But the Scriptures don't say that merely. Here, listen to Christ on this matter. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple... Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. How did they sow? They took a cup of water 
and gave it to some kid in Christ's name. That's the way they sowed their seed. Note this passage. Open your home to a prophet because he is a prophet. You will receive a prophet's reward. You might not ever speak a word like a prophet. Stand in a pulpit and preach a sermon. Open your home to them and you'll receive the reward of a prophet or a pastor or a preacher. Hear, brothers and sisters. Be faithful in the little things and God will reward you with much. You'll hear words like this. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Things like that the Bible's clear about. So what then cost us seeds that go flying in different directions of which after they're sown we so wish we could get them back. Things like this. Lose your temper. Right. Right. Lose your temper. Give your weak mind a moment to gather up something on the phone that leads you astray. The money that's sitting there that's not yours, you're tempted to take and you know you need it. You've got bills and other things. On and on we could go. There's so many ways in which you sow these deceitful seeds. But know this, according to the Scripture, the important thing is that you're timely and it's a priority that you sow these good seeds. You've got to know one day you're going to enjoy them in abundance, right? You're going to enjoy them. So, brothers, sisters, listen, this is my encouragement. Open your homes. Open your hearts. Give, give. Sow any way that you have opportunity. Young and old, sow. Even when it's windy or stormy, sow. Don't grow weary in your sowing. You might well think it's not falling on good ground. So anyway. Don't give up on your children. Don't give up on your neighbors. Don't give up on your family. Don't give up on your co-workers. Sow the seeds that God has given you. Serve them well. Love them right. Don't talk about them when you get home. Pray for them. You see, friend, if you've got a bag of seed and it stays in your bag, it does you no good at harvest. If you're afraid you're going to sow it on a hard path and it won't come up, you'll not sow and your land will lay bare or worse yet with weeds. Sow, brothers and sisters. Sow. But I can't do what so-and-so can do. That's all right. Can you give a cup of cold water? Christ thought much of that. Can you feed someone in your home? Can you go visit them when they're sick? Christ takes note of these things. It's these things, friend, that our Savior so delights in. Please. Now listen to the Lord of the harvest. You might think that you've sown little, but notice the way in which you get a return on everything you sow. Know this. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your lap. You hear me? This is the way God gives in return. He's not stingy in the way He returns the things you give. I'm not preaching health and wealth gospel. I'm telling you what the Scripture said. Moses said he looked to the reward. 
That's why he gave up all the treasures in Egypt. He thought, he saw the things of God of more value, brothers and sisters, for time and eternity than he saw all the riches of Egypt. And if you think God is miserly in his giving, you'll so little. But if you think God returns in abundance like the scripture says, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your lap. How does he measure out things? Not like the restaurants anymore, right? During these days of inflation, that hamburger that was that big has gotten that big, right? That's not the way God does things. You sow a hamburger that big, you get a burger that big. You give a cup of cold water, you enjoy it through all eternity. You open your home, you give, you serve, you're hospitable, you love, you speak words of truth. What are kind and gracious words are like apples of gold and settings of silver. A kind word removes anxiety from the heart of a man or a woman. When you change those little diapers by faith in Christ, you'll never lose your reward. You see, you didn't make that baby, not according to Psalm 139. That was a gift God gave to you so that the consequences of your love could go throughout all eternity. Man, what a giver, right? And so this is the God we come to serve, the one who gives just in this way. So what ought to be your priority? It ought to be this. You ought to consider carefully this truth. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. What if you sow to the flesh? What if you spend your life pursuing this world? And brother, what is more dangerous is, what if you get it? What if you get everything this world offers? Fame and fortune and wealth and everything you were after. What when the final day comes and all of that's added up and you put it on the scales, the Bible says it's less than nothing. That cup of cold water outweighs it by a ton. That's what the Bible says. So here's the first thing on man's priority. Understand God's principle and law. You need not be thoughtless. How, how, deep, how deep can a man go in a scuba suit in the water? Anybody know? Carl? Carl knows. He's a scuba diver. 130 feet? That's right. Some of them have gone a little deeper with special equipment, but you're not going far. Your priority is to understand what God's designed and then operate in a way that you're blessed by it. Go 130 feet all you want. See all the fish that are there. But you go deeper than that. You'll be crushed by the very thing you desire. Pleasure in. That's God's design in the moral world. God's given you everything richly to enjoy. Yet if you pursue wealth, you will be destroyed. It's not a question, brothers. You'll take a knife and run it through your own soul. It's clear in the Scriptures. These things are true. They'll never be disregarded. The fruit in your field reveals the seed you've sown. It's just a simple fact. If you're bitter about what you don't have, you've been sowing seeds of envy. 
We know where your mind's been and what your thoughts are. If your bones rot from the inside out, like the writer of Psalms says, that's what occurs when sin's a part of the things he's doing. And ultimately this, my friend, according to the Scriptures about this, you sow seeds to the flesh, you will indeed reap corruption. You'll reap the very thing that came on this world because of sin. Your body will be put in the grave, but it won't end there. You'll stand before God and give an account, and you can't give an answer. Because there's not one. And you forever will stand, you forever will spend eternity eating the fruit of your own ways. Nasty fruit indeed. Please, I beg you, trust Christ. But what about you who've sown good things? Oh, you shall from the Spirit reap life everlasting. Things here you enjoy deeply. Things there you can't wait to enjoy with those who have trusted Him like you. You live a life, life of hope. The fruitful return of righteousness James talks about. Will be yours here and hoped for and enjoyed there forever and ever. In closing, that leaves this challenge for there's some folks here, I'm sure, that would say like others, it's too, lo- it's too late for me. It's too late. You might well say, I've sown too many bad seeds. Really. That is a possibility. Only if you're comfortable with that. Are you comfortable eating what you've sown? Say, no, I brought my lunch in a paper bag, but I like my neighbors much better. That's a good thing. This is the point. The Bible is about the God who restores what the locusts have eaten. It's about the Christ who came and because of Adam's sin, and Adam stood under the curse, the first Adam, but the second Adam removed the curse. You see what the weeds and thorns can do temporarily. God removed eternally. In Christ, you're here and you've sown a field full of seeds that are weeds. It's an amazing thing. And it delights my soul to offer you a Savior who can remove every eternal penalty for those weeds in your life. Would you be interested? You see, I can't remove the scars that some of of them have caused in your life. And neither does God. Jacob limped into heaven, but brothers, he went to heaven. Because Christ paid for the price of his sinful sowing of all of those weeds. What about you? What about you and I? You here and you're an unbeliever. I found myself just like this, a field full of weeds. And I heard the offer of a Christ who would receive if we came. All who are burdened and heavy laden. Christ offers you rest. Oh, I've sown seeds like this. Christ comes. Though Adam brought the thorns and the thistles, Christ brought grace and life. Will you have Him? Will you have Him? And those of you who do, will you sow in light of what He's done on your behalf? Will you? I promise His Word says... You'll enjoy it through all eternity. Do you believe Him?
I hope so. Because that's the offer been made from Christ Himself. Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful for the gospel and that You've come and died in our place. Given us hope of the life that is and the one that is to come. What a Savior to sinners. Lord, lives full of weeds like all of us experience. And you've come and you've forgiven us and put us right. And now you've given us an opportunity to sow different seeds, to reap a different harvest, to enjoy the things we do through all eternity. Help us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall certainly reap if we do not faint. Please, Lord, we pray. Do good to your people that sit here and to those who are lost and undone. Save them, we beg you. 